When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. A lot to get to on this Tuesday, November 14th. President Biden's foreign policy set to face yet another major test as he departs today for a high-stakes meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. They will be meeting on the sidelines of a major economic summit with other global leaders. We're already learning of a potential U.S.-China deal on fentanyl. Now it comes as President Biden is juggling his support of Israel's war against Hamas with growing peril around Gaza's hospitals. The president is now urging that those facilities, quote, must be protected. And Biden's government is now just three days away from a potential shutdown, a vote to avert it set for today. But the measure includes no funding for either of the two wars his administration is supporting. Public pressure for Biden to maintain his support for Israel will be on full literal display today. A huge rally at the National Mall planned with tens of thousands expected to attend. Meanwhile, concern is building around Donald Trump's rhetoric about a potential second term as president. One of his former Georgia confidants says she was told Trump never intended to leave the White House after his 2020 loss. We have all these stories and angles covered with our team of reporters around the world and analysts right here in studio. CNN This Morning starts now. Just hours from now, President Biden will leave Washington and fly to the West Coast, where he will be meeting face-to-face with Chinese President Xi Jinping. That'll happen tomorrow. It's just one of the huge foreign policy tests that he is facing right now. On so many fronts, he is grappling with the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza, calling for the protection of hospitals as street fighting intensifies and Israeli troops surround Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. The hospitals in Gaza, have you expressed any specific concerns to Israel on that, sir? Well, uh, you know, I uh, have not been reluctant in expressing my concerns that's going on. Um, and it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. The hospital must be protected. The Al-Shifa hospital director says conditions inside are, quote, catastrophic. There's no food, no water, no milk for children and babies. And we've seen heartbreaking images of newborns taken out of incubators due to the lack of electricity. A U.S. official tells CNN it's believed Hamas has a command post underneath the hospital. The Israeli military has accused Hamas of storing weapons in hospitals and using them as command centers. The IDF brought our own colleague Nick Robertson to the basement of a children's hospital in Gaza where they say Hamas kept guns, explosives, and also possibly hostages. We have two reporters covering the story this morning. Let's start with Arlette Sines at the White House. She joins us now. Tell us more about the White House response to what we're seeing in Gaza because we did see John Kirby from the White House come out after the president made those remarks we just played to try to explain them more. 
Yeah, and the White House is watching these situations happening at the hospitals in Gaza and are as aware of the humanitarian impact, the concerns of the state of those hospitals. But President Biden there really issued a word of caution to Israel as they are conducting their operations around the hospitals. Uh, he said that he believes that these hospitals must be protected, that uh, he wants to see less intrusive operations on the ground there in the areas of the hospitals. That is something that was echoed by White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan yesterday when he said the president does not want to see firefights in the hospital. Now, the White House uh, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby also yesterday uh, tried to explain that there is a high burden that the Israeli Defense Forces have at this time as they're trying to go after those uh, Hamas forces, but also need to balance the concerns about the civilians and the impact uh, that the fighting around that hospital could have on the situation on the ground there. But this all comes, as you've heard the Biden administration, really ramp up their warnings, their concerns about the loss of Palestinian lives in Gaza. You heard that from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who has said that far too many Palestinians have died in this conflict. But the White House right now is really trying to strike this balancing act as they are not only trying to support Israel's uh, right to defend itself, go after Hamas, but also balance those humanitarian concerns, including around the dire consequences or uh, situation that has been uh, happening at the, many of those hospitals. Jamona Karachi, over to you. Let's touch on what's happening on the ground in Gaza. We're hearing that the two largest hospitals are no longer operating. What more do we know at this point? Well, Phil, as we've seen over the past few weeks, you've seen hospital after hospital going out of service, going dark in Gaza. Uh, more than half of the medical facilities that are desperately needed right now have essentially collapsed. The latest that we're hearing, the two largest medical facilities, Ashifa Hospital and Al-Quds Hospital, have, uh, are no longer functioning. Now, when it comes to Ashifa Hospital, as you mentioned, we heard that they have no power. Uh, they have no fuel to run their generators, and they have been saying uh, for days right now that they are struggling to keep patients alive. They say that they have lost several patients, uh, including uh, three neonatal uh, babies, because they no longer can run their incubators. You've got the Israelis on the other side saying, well, they believe and they have intelligence. They say that there is a Hamas command and control center underneath that hospital, that they're not targeting these hospitals, that they are going after Hamas. You've got the Palestinian officials, you've got Hamas, you've got doctors all denying that and saying that uh, an, an international independent organization should be able to send or should send uh, uh, missions to investigate these uh, allegations. And then you've got Al-Quds Hospital, also a really catastrophic situation there. They have, according to the Palestinian Red Crescent that runs that hospital, uh, 300 patients, their family members and medical staff inside that hospital. They say that they are surrounded, that they are being targeted, they say, uh, by the Israeli military. The Israelis have denied this, saying that they have come under attack by uh, Hamas militants outside uh, that hospital. Again, something denied by the Palestinian Red Crescent saying there's no armed uh, persons inside that hospital, that there's been no shots fired out of the hospital. They are calling for an urgent uh, evacuation. They are trying mm -hmm. to get those patients and their families, Phil, who include an American teen, a family that we have spoken to in recent days. They want to get them out of the hospital, but they just can't right now. Yeah.
Giovanna Croce, Arlette Sainz, thank you so much for the reporting. And one of the big issues is the lack of ability for many journalists to be inside Gaza. We're going to see from our colleague Nick Robertson later, he got in with the IDF. But when you don't have a lot of independent journalists in there, it's hard to see what's going on at these hospitals. No no questions. One side versus the other. And there's still a lot of gray area right now. Well, also, as we mentioned today, tens of thousands of people are expected to gather on the National Mall for a March March for Israel rally in Washington, D.C., Nearly 6,000 miles away in Israel, families of hostages being held by Hamas are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, calling on their leaders to do more to bring their loved ones home. CNN's Oren Lieberman is there live. Oren, this march in Israel, is there a singular message here? What are they trying to convey to the Israeli leadership? Do whatever it takes to bring the hostages home. That is what we've heard from so many here both in the statements they made and talking to them on the side. You can see a group here behind me. This is the march just beginning. It's starting here. It will go a few miles today, and then it will make its way all the way to Jerusalem over the course of the last several days. The families of the hostages have been in Hostage Square here for the last 11 or 12 days, trying to get answers from the defense ministry on the other side of me, where the war cabinet has met repeatedly. But they feel like they're not being heard. They feel like their message isn't getting through and they're demanding more, asking why the hostages aren't home yet, why a deal hasn't been made yet. For them, the priority isn't destroying Hamas. It is bringing the hostages home. And the march here, reminiscent of another march, if we have this video from 2010, Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier who was captured in 2006, his family marched from northern Israel to Jerusalem. And by the time they arrived, there were thousands of people put, uh, with them, putting tremendous pressure on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the time to make a deal. And that's exactly the point here as they demand answers. Here is the mother of one of those who was kidnapped. I want to ask all the cabinet in our country, I demand that you will come We are going to Jerusalem, but you will come and talk to us, and we want answers. We want answers. That sense of frustration palpable palpable here as they demand not only some sort of meeting, but progress on hostage negotiations. One of those we spoke with trying to keep the hope that he might see his girlfriend who was kidnapped within a week. All right, Oren Lieberman, please keep us posted. Thank you. All right, a newly obtained video of former Trump loyalists who pleaded guilty in Georgia reveal conversations about alleged efforts to reverse the 2020 election, what they're claiming. What does that mean for Trump's upcoming trial? And for the very first time, the Supreme Court puts new ethics rules into place. But the big question, who's actually going to enforce it? Well, more next. This morning, new videos obtained by ABC and The Washington Post reveal conversations between former Trump loyalists about efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Here is former Trump campaign lawyer Jenna Jenna Ellis telling Georgia prosecutors about a conversation with top Trump aide Dan Scavino in late 2020. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump and everyone understood the boss, um, that's what we all called him. Um, He said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. 
This private interview with investigators took place on October 23rd. That's a reporting from ABC. The next day, Ellis pleaded guilty to one count of aiding and abetting false statements in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Let's bring in CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honey. Great to have you guys here. Ellie, how does this proffer statement, and then we'll get to Sidney Powell because there's that one as well. Yeah. I think in... in the court of public opinion, it's kind of like, wow. But what about in the courtroom? Well, so first of all, so people understand what this is. When we say a proffer statement, this is Jenna Ellis with her attorney present giving a statement to prosecutors saying, here's what I have to offer. My big takeaway is Jenna Ellis does appear to be a viable, useful witness for prosecutors. She appears to have come clean about both election fraud and, and the claim of election fraud being a lie and her own participation in sort of furthering that. This particular piece of testimony that she gives us, she has this conversation with Dan Scavino, where Dan Scavino says Trump told me he's not going to leave, is really interesting. It's really important. I'm not sure it's actually admissible at a criminal trial. Really? It's hearsay. It's Jenna, it's Jenna Ellis taking the stand saying, here's something Dan Scavino told me Donald Trump told him. Now, there are some exceptions. I'm not going to turn this into an evidence class that may apply here, but you're going to have a real battle on your hands to get this statement in actual evidence at a trial. I would attend that class just to start. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, though, about Sidney Powell, not just because she acknowledges that she knew absolutely nothing about election law, yes. which is rich on so many levels, um, <laughs> but she also talked about White House lawyers repeatedly telling Trump that he lost the election and then his response to that. Take a listen. What was um, President Trump's reaction when, I guess, this cadre of advisors would say you lost? It was like... Uh, well, they would say that, and then they'd walk out, and he'd go, see, this is what I deal with all the time. See, this is what I have to deal with all the time. The, the practice gesture, not the, uh, the articulation, but I think indicating that the people who are giving him real information were seen as being on team normal, not sufficiently in support of Donald Trump and his aims to overturn the election. And that's where you bring in the sycophants. Um, it's interesting, Sidney Powell sort of cosplaying normal after all the Kraken comments. But I think what, what's really significant is, is, is I want to go back to the Jen Ellis thing yeah. because it's so stark to me. This is her, one of the president's chief lawyers, talking about a conversation she had with Dan Scavino, who was tight as anybody with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, social media, you know, but almost a body man in terms of how much he travels and is close to the president. I want to use this word advisedly, but from a civic sense, what she is saying, Scavino saying, we're not going to leave. We don't care. We're not going to give up power is in a civic sense evil. It shows contempt for our democracy on a fundamental level. And let me connect the dots here. It also is a foreshadowing for what we're seeing now in terms of the campaign Donald Trump is running, which is essentially a promising and authoritarian, more authoritarian, autocratic type campaign as a matter of policy and rhetoric. Contempt for democracy, contempt for democratic norms. That's the way they're campaigning. And that was their mindset at the end of the office when they said, we'll just not, we'll just refuse to leave power on the basis of no evidence after losing all the cases. That's contempt for our democracy. You know, John brings up a really important point because it couples with the vermin comment that Trump made this weekend about any yep. political opposition in his speech around Veterans Day. It couples with the reporting over the past two weeks from The Washington Post and The New York Times about Trump's plans for what he would do at DOJ, going after political opponents, what he would do to the administrative state, what kind of lawyers he would surround himself with. Yeah, believe him. Take him seriously. Yeah. Take it at face value when he says this. He's saying it out loud and 
it couldn't be more important. I mean, Phil said, Phil turned to me last week when this came out, and I've sort of, we hear all these things from Donald Trump, and they tend to roll off your back. You get numb to it. And Phil turned to me on our show Friday and said, that's insane. I said, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the best way to put it. And, and I stand by that. And even if it's repetitive, even if he does it over and over, it has to be called out and named every single time. It's so dangerous to weaponize prosecutorial power. I mean, I held that power in a very, very small sense as one prosecutor. You don't realize how powerful it is, how much power you have to ruin someone's life. Mm -hmm. Even as a low-level prosecutor like I was, never mind weaponizing the entire Justice Department. It's scary, legitimately scary. I don't scare easily. It's legitimately scary. It needs to be called out. John, last night, uh, Trump's top two campaign advisors put out a statement related to a lot of the stories about the policies yes. of a next Trump administration, kind of saying, oh, hang on, we haven't, we haven't said, every, like, don't take... Just wait. If it doesn't come out of the president's mouth or it's not from the campaign, that's not what he has planned. I, go on the website. The vast majority of what The Times and The Post and CNN have been reporting about what Trump wants to do in 2025, what you're alluding to in your first answer, it's there. It's not being made up. It's there on the website. Often it comes out of the president's mouth or the mouth of people who are advising the campaign on policy who are being floated for serious administration jobs. I mean, you know, Steve Bannon, uh, you know, in, in the circus, his final episode said that, you know, one of the people who's saying that we're going to deport 10 million people is, is a front runner to be attorney general. And it always has to be put through that troll filter when you're dealing with. But no, this attempt by, you know, th this is part of the spin the Trump the Trump campaign keeps trying to do to folks, which is that, look, you know, um, we're, <laughs> don't, don't, don't believe all the hype. We're going to be, this is a more mature, disciplined campaign, tempered by the experience of having run an administration before. We're moderates in the context tempered. of MAGA. Oh, yeah. this, this is the pitch they're making, and some people keep buying. And it's utter BS. It's Maya Angelou. When people tell you who they are, believe listen, <laughs> believe them. Yeah, let and us. They keep telling us. Let us ditch the whole seriously but not literally thing. Correct. Any Thank trash you. can for eternity. John Avalon, Ellie <laughs> Helmick, thanks. Thank Appreciate it. President Biden and Xi Jinping expected to announce a big crackdown on fentanyl at their highly anticipated meeting that's going to happen tomorrow in California. We have new reporting ahead. And new reporting on the FBI probe into New York Mayor Eric Adams and his campaign. What sources are telling us about what exactly is being looked into here? Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this just in hours before President Biden's highly anticipated face-to-face -face meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. That's going to happen tomorrow in San Francisco. There is a potential breakthrough on one key issue. Phil, you have some really important, meaningful new reporting 
on fentanyl. Yeah, Poppy, over the course of the last several weeks, U.S. officials, Chinese officials have been trying to hammer out agreements on a set of issues that the two leaders can talk about. Obviously, the two leaders of the two most powerful countries in the world. This is a critical, highly consequential bilateral meeting, the second that the two have had in person since President Biden has been in office. And one of the areas where they are on the brink of agreement, I am told, according to two people familiar with the matter, is on the issue of fentanyl. Obviously, this is a major issue inside the U.S. It's a major issue for inside the Biden administration. And one of the issues that they have been trying to deal with, trying to grapple with, are the precursor chemicals that can be put together in Mexico to actually make fentanyl. China has cracked down at the administration's request on actual fentanyl itself, but the precursor chemicals are still being shipped, as you see here from this map, on a regular basis, which are then put together for the fentanyl that has been so deadly inside the United States. How deadly? Well, if you look at this map or of this chart in terms of how overdoses have risen over the course of the last several years, 112,000 overdoses in the U.S. Uh, back between May of 2022 and May of 2023, 77,000 of them were due to synthetic uh, opioids or the fentanyl-related crisis. This has been a top issue from a domestic political perspective. Republicans asking President Biden to take this issue on when he meets face-to-face -face with President Xi on Wednesday, but also globally. This is something the administration has been trying to key on. What the agreement would entail, and it's not finalized yet, but essentially is the Chinese would agree to crack down on the companies that make these chemicals and export those chemicals. The U.S. would be giving them something in return. We'll have to see the details when it's announced, but one of several issues that the president's will be talking about, these leaders talking about a great power competition. There's no question about that, one of which has been, from a relationship perspective, in a very, very low place over the course of the last year or so. One of the critical issues, one of the critical agreements that U.S. officials say they absolutely want to secure along with fentanyl is on restoring military-to-military -military communication, basically broke off altogether after Speaker Nancy Pelosi, then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi, traveled to Taiwan back in August of 2022, trying to restore that finally at this meeting. Also, the issue of Taiwan, always a hot-button issue between these two countries. Climate change, an area where U.S. officials say they can make uh, real progress and have agreements with on China, and trying to mitigate conflicts, at least manage them, understand where both sides stand that more than anything else at this stage with this type of tension around the globe, not just between China and the United States, but in the Middle East, obviously in Europe as well, that relationship, the ability just to communicate, that more than anything else is what U.S. officials are seeking. I want to bring in CNN's Mark Stewart, who joins us live from Beijing right now. And Mark, what's your sense of, we have some idea of what the U.S. wants in terms of deliverables. What does President Xi want out of this bilateral meeting? Well, let's first talk about these military issues that you raised, Phil, because certainly they are top of mind. And I think that we will sh uh, see she really emphasized to President Biden that Taiwan is theirs. He also will likely raise some objections to some of the aerial surveillance that we've seen from the United States over the Straits of Taiwan, over the South China Sea. I was talking to one analyst recently, and he, he pointed out the fact that this relationship between the U.S. and China is one that could quickly spin out of control. And China, in particular, does realize that that would be a very bad thing if that were to happen. So we're going to definitely see this emphasis on guardrails and, and red lines that cannot be crossed between these two nations. 
There are going to be some areas, though, where there is going to be fruitful conversation. Uh, I'm going to focus on economics. Right now, the Chinese economy is slow growing. It's seen a lot of struggles. There's a real estate crisis here. Young people are having a hard time finding a job. So expect President Xi to tell President Biden that China is open for business. We want foreign dollars. There has been a lot of regulation in the past, but perhaps we can make things easier. Also, expect to see President Xi really emphasize the fact of a successful trade relationship between the United States and China. This is a money-making venture for both, for both countries. Lots of exports on both sides of the Pacific, so expect to hear that. But there's going to be some caution. As we've heard Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen say, this is all about de-risking and not decoupling, Phil. Yeah, that is the phrase from the administration. Mark Stewart, always good to see you, my friend. Thank you. And it appears that huge fire that closed that really busy freeway in Los Angeles was set intentionally, according to the governor of California. We have new details on when the freeway can expect to be opened. Also, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband publicly recounts for the first time what he felt when a man with a hammer attacked him in his own home. Stay with us. Welcome back. Well, that huge industrial fire that forced the closure of a major freeway in Los Angeles was intentionally said. That's according to California Governor Gavin Newsom. They finished that investigation up about 12 hours early and they made a determination, a preliminary determination. Uh, there was malice intent that this fire occurred uh, within the fence line of the facility you see behind me, that it was arson and that it was done and set intentionally. City officials described the indefinite closure of Interstate 10 as a crisis. L.A.'s mayor is urging drivers to prepare for delays, try to take alternate routes. More than 300,000 people traveled on this key freeway every day. Well, officials say the FBI's investigation into New York City Mayor Eric Adams is focused on campaign money and possible foreign influence. They're reportedly trying to determine whether the Turkish government benefited from donations to Adams' 2021 mayoral campaign. Sources tell us the FBI is scrutinizing records of checks and wire transfers. They're also looking to see if Adams successfully pressed city officials to allow a Manhattan high-rise housing the Turkish consulate to open despite safety concerns with the building. Now, Adams has a long relationship with the Turkish-American community, and it's no secret he has further political ambitions, including, potentially, the White House. Federal agents seized Adams' electronic devices early last week. He's not been accused of any wrongdoing and will be taking questions from reporters later this morning. Well, today, the federal trial continues in California of the man charged with attacking Paul Pelosi, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yesterday, Paul Pelosi told a jury for the first time in detail, the horror that he felt when he was struck in the head with a hammer, attacked inside of his own home. Our Veronica Miracle has more from that trial. For the first time since this violent attack. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey, 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 hey. What is Pardon going on right now? I'm not getting an answer on call, but... Paul Pelosi recounting the terrifying moments he was assaulted in his home. Give me your hand. Give me your hand. Pelosi taking the stand in federal court more than a year after the attack. David DePap is accused of breaking into Pelosi's home and searching for his wife, then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Paul Pelosi testifying he knew he was in serious danger when he woke up and saw a man with a hammer and ties standing near his bed. 
He recalled trying to stay calm and not agitate the intruder. He was able to get his phone, but said he had to subtly signal to a 911 dispatcher he needed help. Is the Capitol Police around? 2.20. No, this is they, 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 they usually here at the house protecting my wife. He told me to put the phone down. 2.20. And that's just what he said. Pelosi testified DePap was intent on finding Nancy, calling her the leader of the pack. DePap would later admit to investigators his true intentions that October evening. I thought I was going to basically hold her hostage and I was going to talk to her and basically tell her what I do. If she told the truth, I'd let her go scot-free. If she died, I was going to break the house. Eventually, Pelosi told the jury he was able to convince DePap to go downstairs right as police arrived. Pelosi said he didn't know what would happen next. He said DePap had a hammer in his right hand when he saw the police, so Pelosi tried to grab the hammer. That's when he says DePap pushed him aside and hit him on the head. Pelosi said he remembered waking up in a pool of his own blood. His recovery, he says, is still ongoing due to a fractured skull. He's relearned how to walk and manage constant headaches and dizziness. DePap is facing federal and state charges and faces decades in prison if convicted. DePap's attorneys say that he did attack Pelosi, but this case is about the why. They argued that DePap's motives are unrelated to Pelosi's official duties. It's unclear if DePap will testify. Veronica Miracle, CNN, San Francisco. We're going to show you live pictures right now from Israel, where the families of hostages are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, demanding their government do everything they can to save their loved ones. A live report ahead. Also happening today, tens of thousands of people set to rally in Washington, D.C., in support of Israel and call for efforts to combat anti-Semitism. We'll take you there live. Well, happening right now, families of hostages taken by Hamas are marching in Tel Aviv. They will be making their way to Jerusalem. They are calling for leaders to do much more to get their loved ones home. Also today, tens of thousands of people will rally in Washington, D.C. to show their support for Israel and to denounce anti-Semitism and its alarming rise. It is just the latest example. CNN affiliate WESW reports red swastikas were found painted on tombstones in a Jewish cemetery this was found over the weekend just outside of Cleveland. The police department says 23 tombstones there were vandalized. Joining us now is the CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America, one of the two groups organizing the march in Washington, D.C. today, Eric Fingerhut. Mr. Fingerhut, thank you very much for, for joining us. Tens of thousands of people. It's going to be a huge display of support for Israel fighting against this dramatic rise in anti-Semitism. And I wonder what you hope it accomplishes. Well, first of all, I want to say that my grandparents are buried in that cemetery where those swastikas were found. So this is very deeply personal to me and to every, uh, to every member of the American Jewish community. But we're, we're going to do three things here today. Uh, we're going to stand uh, proudly in support of Israel, and we're going to demonstrate to uh, the leadership uh, of this country, to the Congress, to the president. We're going to thank them for their support of Israel. We're going to show them that the overwhelming majority of Americans support these policies. A poll released today shows 83% of Americans support Israel's right to respond to this atrocity by Hamas. Uh, and we're going to call on them to continue those policies. Secondly, we're going to lift up uh, the faces and the names of the over 240 hostages, not just Israelis, but people of other countries uh, and, uh, and faiths who've been held for 39 days in humane 
uh, conditions. And finally, we're going to stand proudly and say we will not be intimidated in our homes, in our communities, in our places of worship. We will stand on the National Mall in the in the most visible place in this country mm -hmm. and say America will not stand for this and our community will not stand for this. And you are doing this as the Anti-Defamation League is out with new numbers that shows a 316 percent rise in anti-Semitic incidents since just the terror attack on October 7th. I know you've been coordinating with law enforcement in D.C. ahead of this event. It's a sad reality that you have to, given the alert uh, that you have to be on. But I wonder what the security um, protections are that you've been told and just the fact that you needed to have such concern for security of people gathering peacefully. Well, it is a shame, but uh, we are very grateful to the federal law enforcement agencies, Homeland Security, the FBI, National Park Police, and of course the D.C. Uh, police and the Metro Police as well, all of whom are looking out uh, for the crowds coming today. Uh, and they understand that it is fundamental that all Americans should have the right to come to their nation's mm -hmm. capital, to stand in the nation's mall, uh, and, uh, and to express their opinions without fear, just as we should be able to do so in our homes, on our campuses, and in our communities and our places of worship. I thought it was interesting, a few days after the terror attack on Israel, you told Forbes that Israel needs to be able to maintain the political support for its response, and that when Israel engages military, that is, militarily, that is when opposition starts to rise. According to the Hamas-controlled uh, Palestinian Ministry of Health, the death toll of Palestinians is over 11,000 now in the response to this terror attack. We've heard in the past couple of days, President Biden saying, quote, hospitals need to be protected. We heard Secretary of State Antony Blinken say that far too many Palestinians have been killed. And I wonder what your response is now to the Israeli response to the terror attack, given what appears to be some growing daylight between the administration and Israel on certain aspects of how this is being carried out. You know, look, every death of a civilian, of an innocent, is a tragedy. Uh, but the responsibility for those deaths lie with Hamas, who are holding the Gazans hostage. The Israeli Defense Forces going inch by inch, opening pathways for people to escape. And we've seen the pictures uh, of the Hamas terror army literally stopping people, shooting at people to stop them from escaping. Uh, that is where the responsibility lies. And uh, as, as I said, the overwhelming majority of Americans understand this and support this. And I know that the Biden administration and the Congress understand it and support it as well. What about, Eric, finally, what is happening on college campuses around this country? Just listen to part of a conversation that our colleague Ellie Reeve had with Jewish students at Cornell. Here it is. I was on my way to the kosher dining hall when I looked down and saw the threats. How did you feel? I mean, it's, it's terrifying. Like, this isn't, this isn't anything that we thought we would ever have to deal with in the United States. What action do you think uh, big universities across this country need to take that has not been taken? Well, every university leader in this country has a responsibility to ensure that no student is intimidated uh, or harassed on campus because of their religion uh, or because of their beliefs. Campuses are supposed to be the places where we can go to meet and to share views. It's a, it's a terrible state of affairs and university leaders must do more. But what I want to make sure that your listeners know is that today on the National Mall, college students from every campus in America are coming to mm. stand up, to be proud, to show they're not afraid uh, and to assert uh, their right uh, to lead in this country. 
Eric Fingerhut will be watching closely. As I said, one of our colleagues is on the ground covering it as well. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, the deadline to pass a funding bill and avert a government shutdown now just three days away. What can we expect at today's House vote? And if Speaker Johnson can actually stay in his week's old new role if he decides to work with Democrats. Plus, the House punts on impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, why a number of Republicans, some of them, sided with Democrats. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, the deadline to pass a funding bill and avert a government shutdown now just three days away. The stopgap measure proposed by newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson is facing some pretty familiar pushback from the far right wing of his own party. I'm disappointed in this bill, and I certainly hope that this bill is not going to proceed as it's currently structured. Currently, I'm a lean no. Just another clean CR that, that continues, this, continues the status quo is not going to be acceptable. I think it's a failure. I, I'm not voting for a clean CR. I'm not carrying on Nancy Pelosi's budget. And without enough Republicans on board, Johnson has moved to circumvent them and rely on Democratic votes to get the bill across the finish line, which, if that sounds familiar to you, is exactly what led to the ouster of the previous House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Joining us now, national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price, and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon is back with us. So, Michelle, what's different now? Because I, I haven't heard that uh, they're going to try and motion to vacate Michael Johnson. What, what changed? It's a different date on the calendar. Oh, okay. Other than that, it's hard to know exactly what's different here. Uh, you know, the only difference, the slight difference we have is there's like a bit of a honeymoon period for Mike Johnson here that they're willing to give him a little bit, maybe a little bit of, of time to strike a deal here. And his, his deal is this two-tiered proposal where some of the government will be funded until January, some will be funded into February. It's unclear if that is enough to get him enough support. He's, as you've seen, you've got members of his own party who are not supportive of this. And Democrats right now are still playing their cards close to the vest. It's not clear if they're going to step up this time and, and join with Republicans to pass this. Yeah. And they've also got the scar tissue um, of, of, of what happened after they ousted Kevin McCarthy and the fact that Johnson is so conservative personally that that all buys him a little bit of wiggle room. But yes, this is the way things actually get done at the end of the day when you've got these kind of margins and, and, and this kind of uh, disproportionate influence on the far right. It's a bipartisan process. That's the spoiler alert. You're going to need some Democrats for government to function. So... Welcome to reality. Can you explain this two-tiered approach to people? <laughs> sure. I'm serious. January 19th, February 2nd, what's the difference? Why would this be more palatable than... Um, the the idea is that we will keep government running in its essential functions in the first tier, right? So no shutdown, things people depend on, uh, will, will be in place, construction, veterans yeah. affairs, transportation. And then the more contentious optional things, you know, presumably some ideological wrangling would be kicked to... February 3rd, which, again, is only three weeks uh, later. So let's not overemphasize the amount of enlightenment that's going to occur in that period of time. And, of course, all this is against the backdrop of a Democratic-controlled Senate. And Republican senators aren't too thrilled about this kind of brinksmanship either. Um, but it would effectively take a lot of the essential roles and just sort of roll them forward. And it's clean, and there's no spending cuts, which is in part why yeah, and, which is upset. why Democrats. But it's support. what's really great is we get to do the countdown clock again oh in God, January, no. and then again in February, Can't wait. and then probably and again this in March. Going. It's going to be great. Exactly. Um, it was interesting last night that there was a proposal on the House floor to impeach the Homeland Security yes. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This has been something a number of Republicans have been talking about in the House since they took the majority. Uh, the SNAP impeachment proposal was not uh, passed. It was kicked to a committee. Eight Republicans voted against it. What did you make of that? Well, there was an impeachment 
inquiry already going on in this committee. Yeah. So it's, there's some Republicans who said they just want to let that process play out. This, again, feels very similar to the last time we had a shutdown. We also had the Biden impeachment inquiry kind of pending. So we've got Republicans who are supposed to be governing who are also having these impeachment inquiries uh, happening at the same time in the background. And so there's a question of priorities and how they're choosing to spend their time right now. But uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who put that measure out yesterday, has said she will do it again. So this might not be gone for now. What did you make of the Republicans who voted, just to name some of them, Ken Buck, sided with Democrats mm -hmm. on this, Patrick McHenry, a name we all know very yep. well now, uh, Virginia Fox, Mike Turner. I was surprised to see names like, like Virginia Fox in yeah. particular, because usually they would lose no time in, in embracing yeah. anything Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene does. I think what it basically is, is a, is a push to let's do things in something resembling regular order, even though this is a stunt process. Let's have the committee do it. Uh, and, and that kind of a, a traditionalist approach. I, I do want to say, though, I mean, all this kind of stunt impeachment politics, which we've seen a lot of, is occurring against the backdrop this week of the President Biden meeting with the Chinese Premier Xi, Right. And, and it just reminds you of the stakes of reality in places where there is common ground getting tougher with China. China. Um, but yet still, they can't push through a funding, you know, balance proposal put by, pushed forward by the president dealing with Taiwan funding, Ukraine funding, Israel funding and the border. Wall. None of that is in these. None of that's in there. And that's the kind of thing that should be. There's something for everybody, particularly if you're on the right side of the aisle. So it's a question, again, if you want to demonize the DHS secretary. OK, if you want to deal with the issue, fund it. Fund, fund border enforcement, fund more judges to expedite asylum claims. Those are concrete things you could do to solve a problem, unless you just want to demagogic to death. Just for a point of clarity, it's former House Speaker Patrick McHenry. Just want to make that. Is, is it technically, is there an asterisk? Is it like Roger House Harris? Speaker Tim Pro Tem? This is the huge question. Is there any pathway for Ukraine and Israel funding going forward? I mean, this is this is, uh, Israel. At least there is some bi more bipartisan support, House including in the House. Bill. Yeah. Ukraine is a bigger question, but so far we've seen Democrats in the White House saying they don't want to decouple those; that they want those to go through together. So, you know, we'll see as they get into these negotiations if that is something that they're going to crack they on. They may not want to, but will they have to? decouple the two of them. I think they will. And look, Mitch McConnell and other leading Republicans want to make sure we're standing up for Ukraine as well, because this is the kind of investment that stops Vladimir Putin from further aggression. The balanced plan is the wise way out of this. Everybody gets something. You care about the American border. You care about Taiwan and, and standing up to China, you know, Ukraine and Israel. That's the path forward that clearly gets bipartisan support. The attempt to decouple it is an attempt to scuttle it. And, and this sort of, you know, Trump sort of neo-isolationist wing that wants to downplay Putin's invasion of Ukraine, even as they rally around Israel, is logically inconsistent and, national, and dangerous in terms of national security. John Avalon, Michelle Price, great to have you. Thanks so much. CNN This Morning continues right now. Israel saying there is a Hamas commander center hidden under a children's hospital. Hard to imagine how civilians endure the bombardment here. The hospital must be protected. Protecting the innocent. That is what ceasefire now means. President Biden set to hold a highly anticipated bilateral meeting with China's President Xi tomorrow. There are so many other conflicts around the world right now. China does not want to be entangled in something else. ABC News obtaining video connected to the Georgia 2020 election subversion case. He said the bus is not going to leave under any circumstances. There was a coordinated decision to potentially try to not leave power. That's terrifying. Just three days now before the government's bills come due. This is a bipartisan bankruptcy. We have to take this more seriously. Speaker Mike Johnson is going to have to rely on Democratic votes.
Good morning, everyone. As you can see, there is a lot happening. We're so glad you're with us. And part of the thing, probably the top thing on the agenda is yes. this trip for the president yes. with a massively consequential meeting at a very tenuous geopolitical time. President Biden set to leave Washington, D.C., fly to the West Coast, where on Wednesday he will meet face to face with Chinese President Xi Jinping. It is a hugely consequential meeting between the world's most powerful rivals, and it comes as at one of the most turbulent and fraught times of Biden's presidency. He's facing multiple foreign policy crises and sharp political headwinds at home. Right now, President Biden juggling his support for Israel's war against Hamas and the escalation in the humanitarian disaster in Gaza. He is now saying Gaza's largest hospital, quote, must be protected as Israeli troops and tanks surround it. The hospital's director says conditions are catastrophic for the civilian sheltering inside with no food, water or milk for children and babies. The Israeli government saying there is a Hamas command center underneath the hospital. All that happening as the U.S. government is just three days away from a potential shutdown. A vote to prevent it, it's set for today. The measure does not, however, include any funding for Israel or Ukraine. We begin this hour with Orrin Lieberman in Tel Aviv, where families of hostages held by Hamas are marching to Jerusalem. Orrin, if there's one message, when you talk to people in that crowd that you're walking with right now, what is it? They're chanting it as we speak here, Phil and Bobby. Bring them home now. They've said it in Hebrew. They've said it in English. Their number one demand has nothing to do with defeating Hamas and destroying Hamas's tunnel infrastructure. It's about finding some way, any way, to bring 239 hostages home, from the very young to the elderly, making whatever deal is necessary, whatever accommodations, to bring them home now. We've also heard them chant et kulam, that means bring all of them home. This is the demand. We're on now the Ayalon Freeway. This is one of the main uh, north-south highways through Tel Aviv. They're shutting down a couple lanes of traffic here, and they'll march from Tel Aviv all the way to Jerusalem, some 40 miles over the course of the next several days. Before now, they spent a couple of weeks outside the defense ministry where the war cabinet has met. There, they tried to essentially get attention, make it known that their priority was bringing the hostages home and trying to force the government to make a deal. But they feel like that hadn't gotten anywhere. So now they've come to the streets. And if you take a look more behind me, you can see the names of the hostages, names like Eitan, Ohad, Daphna, Moran. These are their families here. They're marching again all the way to Jerusalem and their goal there when they get there on Saturday is to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and re-emphasize that call to bring the families home. A tremendous sense of frustration over the lack of answers that they're getting. Sure, they've heard the statements, they've seen what Netanyahu has said until now. Their palpable feeling is that not enough is being done and that there isn't enough of a, essentially enough of a desire or a demand to come to a deal that will flee, free the hostages still held in Gaza. Phil and Poppy. Or in last hour, you showed us the march from two, 2010 that ultimately put so much pressure on the Israeli government, they made that deal to get Gilad Shalit home, right? Are these protesters hoping the same is true now? And also, what is the latest on the hostage negotiations? Absolutely. If we can pull up that video, you'll see this from 2010. The family of one Israeli soldier who was held in Gaza for five years, they decided they were fed up with the government and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was then also prime minister, and marched all the way from northern Israel to Jerusalem. By the time they arrived at his office, they had thousands with him. That, too, is the idea here. There have been some rumors and reports of progress on hostage negotiations. Uh, President Joe Biden spoke with the Amir of Qatar over the weekend. 
and they spoke about the need to release hostages. We also learned of a three-year-old toddler American citizen who's being held hostage, the youngest American there. And although there is some optimism here that there is a possible deal to bring home, to bring hostages home, there is nothing substantive. And that is part of what's feeding the frustrations here. The negotiations largely held in Qatar with the Qataris who can talk to Hamas, the CIA, and the Mossad. All right, Oren Lieberman walking with those marching uh, in protest, uh, asking for their family members held hostage by Hamas to come home. We'll check back with you. Thanks, Oren. So as we had mentioned, President Biden is making a really significant trip this week. He's going to fly to San Francisco. He will attend the APEC Leader Summit. It's an economic summit. But the big deal is tomorrow. That's when Biden holds a much-anticipated meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Joining us now, Washington Post foreign policy columnist Josh Rogan. Josh, uh, great to have you on. Yes. President Biden really deeply believes, Phil knows this very well from covering the Biden White House, when you sit with someone face to face, you accomplish things you can't otherwise accomplish. And he's known Xi Jinping for a very, very long time. What is the best hope that the White House can get out of this after Jake Sullivan said over the weekend, look, we have to just like reopen the lines of communication here? Right. Well, you're absolutely right, Poppy. For his entire career, President Biden has believed that foreign policy is personal, that if he just gets into the room with these uh, leaders, good or bad, that uh, he can connect with them and make a relationship and uh, convince them to do good things instead of bad things and make deals that he otherwise wouldn't be able to make. Funnily enough, that's exactly what President Trump thought. And President Trump pursued a very similar strategy with Xi Jinping. He thought they were friends. They signed a fentanyl deal in 2019. I don't know if you remember uh, where Xi Jinping promised to curb the transfer of dangerous drugs to America in exchange for trade concessions. And uh, Trump thought they were their friendship would really seal the deal. Well, it didn't work out, okay, because uh, Xi Jinping doesn't feel that way, because the Chinese system doesn't work that way, and because uh, their policies are not going to change based on this one meeting. I, I hear they're going to sign another fentanyl agreement in exchange for some economic cooling off, and uh, I'm sure both sides will pre present that as progress, but uh, it's not. And that's the bottom line here, is that uh, they're going to meet for four hours, they set a bar that's so low uh, that communication is the goal, and they... Uh, we'll achieve that bar, but in terms of solving any of the problems in the U.S.-China relationship, addressing China's economic aggression, its military expansion, its internal repression, its problem with all of its other neighbors who will also be there in San Francisco, 20-something 20, 20 Asian countries, uh, no, no real progress at all. So, uh, you know, yeah, if, if talking is better than not, than not talking. As Winston Churchill said, jaw-jaw uh, jaw is better than war-war. But if you set the bar that low... Uh, then, uh, you know, that's not really an, an improvement in U.S.-China relations. That's just, uh, you know, stopping it from getting worse fast. Which, I mean, honestly, even if the bar is low, to be able to exceed that, especially given where relations have been over the course of the last 11, 12 months, probably isn't a terrible thing. How, can you assess where the bilateral relationship is? It was so bad for so many months of 2023. Seems to have cooled off a little bit. Where does it actually stand? Right. I mean, you're exactly right, Phil. I mean, all you have to do is watch uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's interview with uh, CNN's Christiane Amanpour. Excellent interview. I encourage everybody to watch it. And what Gina Raimondo said is uh, it's time to uh, lower the temperature in the relationship. It speaks to what you just said, Phil. Well, it was hot. Now it's going to get cool. Uh, the problem is that uh, the goal, in my view at least, the goal of U.S.-China relations is not to have a low temperature. It's not to 
you know, get along. The point is to protect U.S. values and interests and to work with our partners to respond to the threats and challenges that China presents as it rises where they affect us. So you all, for the first two years of the Biden administration, I think you had this really competitive policy led by people like Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, which was like, oh, we're going to solve some of these problems by being pretty tough with the Chinese, not as rude and uh, obnoxious as the Trump people, but still pretty tough. Now we're here in year three. It's a political cycle. And the, now the ball has been handed to the economic officials, which is what the Chinese want. And now you have Janet Yellen and Gina Raimondo saying, OK, well, listen, we we got to turn down the, the temperature. Yeah. So, yeah, they'll be able and, to turn down the temperature. But I worry that doesn't solve the problems. That's and, my view. And Gina Raimondo went. I mean, she went a couple of months ago. Sure. Same first, I think, one in her position for like five years to go and saying it's, it's important to be there. Um, yeah. Josh, just to talk about the big picture here, Biden goes into this meeting with extraordinarily low poll numbers and multiple world crises. The Israel-Hamas right. war, dealing with the civilian casualties now, both in Israel, but also now in Gaza, dealing with the ongoing war on Ukraine, and Iran's 52 attacks on U.S. service members and posts now since October 7th. And when you think about the relationship between China and Iran, how does he navigate that tomorrow? Right. Well, I think uh, one of the useful things you can do when sitting down with Xi Jinping is you can talk to him about all these other issues, Ukraine, Iran, the Israel Hamas, where all of it. And, you know, China's the uh, world power, the second biggest country uh, economy in the world, second biggest military in the world. They deserve to be treated with respect. Don't get me wrong. We want good relations with China. Don't get me wrong. We want good trade relations with China. Uh, but it takes two to tango, Poppy. So what you're going to have is the president of the United States tell Xi Jinping, well, we really want you to you know, tell Iran to stop being so bad. We really appreciate it if you tell Putin not to be so bad in Ukraine. And Xi Jinping will have his own list of grievances, some of which are absolutely valid. And for both sides, it makes political sense to have this meeting. They can go back to their countries and say, hey, we talked. Uh, you know, I told them the tough messages and I got an agreement that things are going to get better. And it makes sense politically. I get why Biden is doing this. I'm not, I don't think it's bad to talk. You know, I'm not that's not what I'm trying to say. All I'm trying to say is this is a, a political exercise more than a diplomatic exercise. And they both get something politically out of it. Uh, but the structural problems in the U.S.-China relationship are only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And I think the relationship is just going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, but, you know, uh, let's uh, let's be optimistic. Maybe they'll surprise us and come up with hey, uh, something that I can't even predict. We will take that glass half full <laughs> at the end. Sure. Josh Rogan, appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks very much. Anytime. Well, for the very first time, the Supreme Court has adopted new self-imposed ethics rules, but who's actually going to enforce them? That is the big question. And growing concern around Donald Trump's rhetoric about a potential second term as president as one of his former Georgia co-defendants says she was told Trump never intended to leave the White House after his 2020 loss. The Supreme Court of the United States is the only court, maybe the only federal agency that doesn't have an enforceable code of ethics. These nine people are acting as if they're above the law. They're making critical decisions that change America, and they won't even concede when there's a clear conflict of interest. After months of pressuring the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics, Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin is getting some of what he asked for. On Monday, the Supreme Court announced a code of conduct. It outlines procedures for justices involving recusal from cases, acceptance of gifts, and speaking at various events. Pressure had been mounting for the Supreme Court to act after a series of embarrassing news stories alleged that justices, including Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, skirted ethics regulations when accepting luxury trips. In April, Durbin invited Chief Justice John Roberts to testify on the court's ethics rules before his committee. Roberts declined, citing the separation of powers 
and calling the testimony of a chief justice before Congress, quote, exceedingly rare. Now that the code has been announced, Durbin says he's not sure it goes far enough. All of these are important steps, but they fall short of what we could and should expect when a Supreme Court issues a code of conduct. The court's new code of conduct does not appear to contain any meaningful enforcement mechanism to hold justices accountable for any violations of the code. It also leaves a wide range of decisions up to the discretion of individual justices, including decisions on recusal from sitting on cases. The code does not specifically lay out how it would be enforced, who would enforce it. Our CNN senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupik, is with us now. I mean, he's, Durbin's right in the fact that there's this lack of enforcement mechanisms. But critics would say this is a co-equal branch. That's right. Uh, morning, Poppy and Phil. Uh, yeah, you know, the Supreme Court is really walking a fine line here. It really needed to answer to the public, answer to uh, the congressional uh, critics, uh, but also to preserve its own uh, sort of integrity in its space. So what it's done is it's for the first time put some of these rules in writing, at least told us what it believes its obligations are. But uh, to Senator Durbin's point and your point earlier, Poppy, there is no external enforcement mechanism. And also, more importantly, nothing internal. There's nothing internal that they've set up that would allow a channel for, the, uh, for any complaints to come in for the justices themselves to even air some of those complaints. So I think that you're right when you refer to the separation of powers and the chief justice's interest in trying to make sure that they uh, preserve their own integrity. But they still need to sort of answer that question of if something goes wrong, if a complaint is even made outside, can, can, will the justices answer it in some way? I do have to say for an institution that doesn't like to engage in much of a dialogue on things beyond cases, this was a first step in a dialogue. You know, Joan, to that point, you've had some great reporting on kind of the behind the scenes of the process to yeah. reach this outcome, which didn't seem preordained in a couple times over the course of the last couple of months didn't seem possible. What changed? Well, I, I think it's been the, the drumbeat of pressure on the outside. You're right, Phil. You know, earlier this year, I had learned that the chief was having a hard time getting even a, ma a majority, let alone unanimity, for a formal written code among the justices. But I think just the pressure kept building. There were so many news stories, as you mentioned, about um, justices' off-bench behavior, you know, uh, lavish trips, other gifts that uh, justices were, ta uh, were receiving uh, from uh, wealthy conservatives that you know, just raised a lot of questions about what, what kind of rules they do abide by. And I think it was important for them to put something on paper. And uh, the Chief Justice obviously uh, used uh, you know, some of that outside pressure to make his case within the court. Uh, and as I say, this is a significant first step. It's just that it raises a question of how meaningful it will be. And they did, at the end of their report, refer to the fact that they would be looking to see if additional steps should be taken. Yeah, that, that was an interesting point that was striking, where this leads. Joan, we appreciate right. you. Oh, yeah, so thank always, you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone should read. I can keep talking, right, I can keep talking. And you know right, we love you. this, Joan, so thank you. Everyone should read Joan's new analysis on all of this. It's up on CNN.com. Well, President Biden leaves for California today. He's set to hold a highly anticipated bilateral meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. This is a mass information campaign run by the Chinese government targets U.S. residents to silence critics of Beijing.
I was instantly flooded with messages asking me to kill myself. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. President Biden will head to San Francisco in just a couple of hours. He is set to meet face-to-face -face with Chinese President Xi Jinping. That'll happen tomorrow, and it comes as CNN uncovers a campaign of online intimidation that can be tracked back to the Chinese government. U.S. residents who criticize Beijing are targeted and harassed with thousands of posts or emails like the ones you're seeing. Donny O'Sullivan joins us now with his reporting. That's right, Poppy. Look, you know, just ahead of this meeting between President uh, Biden and President Xi, uh, we're finding that there is an online harassment campaign targeting Americans on U.S. soil, and it's being run by the Chinese government. Have a look. I feel really, really afraid. They use hateful words or threatening words. They will make life very uncomfortable for those who speak ill of China. They are here on American soil thousands of miles from Beijing, but still being hounded and harassed by the Chinese government. I was instantly flooded with messages asking me to kill myself. Her name is Jiayong Fan, a writer for The New Yorker. She's been targeted with a wave of online harassment since she covered pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong four years ago. More than 12,000 tweets calling her a traitor. I was caught so off guard and I wasn't sure if it was a coordinated um, effort. It is a coordinated effort of fake and anonymous accounts, and it's called spamiflage. Depending on how you measure it, it's, it's the biggest disinformation campaign the world's ever seen. Professor Darren Linville from Clemson's Media Forensics Hub has tracked spamiflage for years, but it's only now been revealed that the vast disinformation campaign is tied to the Chinese government. Thousands and thousands of messages repeated over and over again. A CNN review of court documents, social media reports, and interviews with victims reveals a massive, relentless campaign of intimidation by the Chinese government targeting people on U.S. soil. They told me they will kill me if I don't delete my uh, YouTube. Zhao Jinchu posts pro-democracy YouTube videos criticizing the Chinese government from his office here at this church in Virginia. To hit back, the Chinese trolls post thousands of messages attacking him. They cover people's eyes so the Chinese people cannot see the reality. A vast campaign of intimidation that even employs artists to create original illustrations to mock and harass its victims. This is not just some guy in his basement. No. I think it's, it's clearly a very sophisticated effort. I'm often staggered at the number of platforms where we come across their content. Some of the people behind Spamiflage are these Chinese police officers, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. The DOJ charged 34 Chinese police officers for using social media accounts to threaten, harass, and intimidate specific victims in the United States. The indictment is full of pictures allegedly taken from inside the special trolling unit, showing laptops, phones, and other equipment used as part of the operation. A spokesperson for the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. said the DOJ's allegations are politically motivated and have no factual evidence or legal basis. Yeah, they tried to shut me up. They tried to silence me, you know, to, to, to minimize my voice. 
Chen Pokong spent nearly five years in a Chinese prison for his pro-democracy work. Now he's an American citizen and campaigns from here. They started to make noises. At the height of COVID in 2021, he organized a Zoom meeting for pro-Chinese democracy activists in the US. But Chinese police officers, part of Spamafage, broke into the Zoom and shut it down. That time I was myself even shocked. I said, what? The CCP don't even allow us to have a meeting, overseas meeting. The U.S. State Department has warned that the Chinese government is spending billions of dollars annually on foreign information manipulation efforts. And if it goes unchecked, it will reshape the global information landscape. A Communist Party's bloodstream is propaganda, repeating it over and over again and trying to get everyone to repeat that same point of view and reject alternatives. That's in the DNA of Communist parties. Donny, one of the experts in the piece, said he was staggered when he could see the scale, the reach of this. Do we have any idea of how wide that reach is? Yeah, I mean, and look, you saw in the piece there, so oftentimes we talk about these kind of troll operations, we can never put faces to the people who's behind it. You saw there that some of these people have been indicted. They are Chinese police officers that go to work yeah. every day in Beijing, but not patrolling the streets. They are, <laughs> their job as they clock in, clock out is to, is to troll the internet all day. Um, look, and one side of things, there is so many accounts, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of accounts, actually, that have been created over the course of this campaign. Uh, and in many ways, they're remarkably ineffective to, when you talk about that, that there is this kind of full-time team behind it, in that we're not necessarily seeing these accounts go viral in the way that maybe Russian disinformation efforts might have done you know, prior to the 2016 election. Uh, and that is something that the social media companies really stress, is that you know, there's a lot of these accounts, but there isn't a lot of engagement. But as you can see there, there's another purpose to these accounts, right, which it is to intimidate specific people. And, you know, no matter who you are, if you're getting tens of thousands of tweets like these uh, Americans are getting, that is going to have effect on you. That is scary. And on U.S. soil, too. Donny O'Sullivan, yeah. great piece. Thank you. Thank you. It is crunch time on Capitol Hill. Just three days left to avoid a government shutdown where things stand ahead of today's critical vote. And Wall Street today bracing for a critical new gauge of where inflation stands, what the report is expected to reveal, and what it'll mean for the Fed's rate hikes. Stay with us. House Speaker Mike Johnson facing the first major test of his leadership with only three days left to avoid a government shutdown. Today, the House is set to vote on Johnson's two-step plan as GOP hardliners warn him against working with Democrats. But at least eight Republicans are against the plan, going to vote against it. Eight have announced it publicly. They're known as continuing resolutions, meaning he can't rely on a simple majority and a procedural vote. This effectively forces him to work with Democrats and lots of Democrats to push the bill through with a two-thirds majority. Just like his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, at least when it comes to a clean continuing resolution, was trying to do before he was removed. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now. Um, Lauren, to that point, there are no spending cuts. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what's so different about this, other than their staggered dates, <laughs> than what Kevin McCarthy repeatedly did and got lambasted and eventually kicked out of the chair for. Yeah, Phil, this sounds familiar because this plan looks a lot like what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to do just a little over a month ago. But House Republicans finding themselves in really the exact same place they were in. And privately, the argument that Speaker Johnson has been making to his conference is that we did waste significant time on a speaker's race trying to replace former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and that that really ate away at our ability to try to pass more and more individual 
multiple spending bills to put us at a place where we could have a broader debate about spending with Democrats at this moment. So the argument coming from the speaker is let's sort of live to fight another day in January and again in February when these staggered dates come to pass. Let's not have this fight now. But as you noted, there are at least House eight House Republicans who are opposed to this plan. We expect that there are likely even more than that. And that is why Johnson is going to have to go forward with this plan where he, like you noted, is not going to just need a handful of Democrats. He's going to need a lot of Democrats. And we're going to get a sense today as Democrats are huddling behind closed doors as to whether or not Democrats are going to be prepared to give him that support. In some ways, they've held back a little bit. They wanted to see what Johnson could do on his own. So it's going to be really important to see what kind of consensus Democrats can get out of their private caucus meeting that'll happen at 9 a.m. today on Capitol Hill. But look, the reality is no one wants a shutdown. So while a lot of Democrats are a little frustrated, a little annoyed at this idea of having to have stacked dates for a potential another shutdown showdown in January and February, they also realize they had a big victory in the fact that there are no spending cuts that are included here. They also got, you know, an extension of farm bill policies that were passed under the Democratic uh, president and Democratic leadership in the House. So this is a victory for Democrats. It just doesn't look exactly like a perfect victory for them on paper. So- I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure everybody out there is pretty cognizant that next week is Thanksgiving as well, and that might have something to do with the amenable nature of folks. We'll have to see Laura Fox. Keep us posted. Thank you. Phil, you're so cynical. No one wants to go. Yes, for I am. <laughs> Thanksgiving. All right, take a look at the economy here. Stock futures pretty flat this morning, just ahead of the release of the monthly consumer price index. That's, of course, a key inflation measure. The October report will come out before the opening bell in less than an hour. It's expected to show a headline inflation rate of 3.3%. That is down from 3.7% in September, according to Bloomberg. Americans did pay less for gas last month, but underlying pressures remain very heavy. The Fed has not yet said it will end its historic interest rate increases. Bank of America anticipates a 1.8% month-over-month drop in energy prices driven by lower gas that did fall pretty sharply last month. With over a dozen federal agencies sounding the alarm on the impacts of climate change in America, the dire new details from their report just out this morning. Despite the bleak outlook, one city known for extreme weather may have some answers on climate change. Our Bill Weir has the latest. Bill, good morning. Good morning, Poppy. That's right. Uh, climate change is affecting everybody everywhere, in some places more, more than others, as you can see. But there are climate havens, science tells us. And I'll give you a hint on the biggest one closest to where we are right now. Talk to you in just a few. New this morning, a stark new report from more than a dozen federal agencies shows that the impacts of global warming are being felt in every corner of the U.S. And things are projected to get worse over the next decade. CNN's Bill Weir joins us now from Niagara Falls. Uh, Bill, on this report, there's never a ton of good news in this space. But what stood out to you in this congressionally mandated report? Well, this is the first time, Phil, that they've really looked at the economics, the cost of this phenomenon right now, and it is knee-buckling when it comes to the expense. We're a $25 billion storms just this year. They're projecting a 25% decrease in worker productivity for anybody who works outside in future summers. It is expensive. It is unfair. The people with the smallest carbon footprints are suffering the most. Uh, But there is so much hope given the fact that we have all the tools for our survival 
right here. And they're the most expensive or inexpensive options in human history. Onshore wind and solar panels with batteries are the cheapest forms of energy now humanity has ever known. But the sluggish shift away from the fuels that burn, oil, gas, and coal, means it's only happening about 1% a year. What needs to happen at 6% a year to avoid the maximum pain. There's an old joke that tells us there are only two seasons in Buffalo, winter and the 4th of July. But in the age of global warming, the city wants you to know that now their weather is going from punchline to lifeline. Thanks to its Goldilocks location amid the Great Lakes, Buffalo has never reached 100 degrees. You get, you know, on average, about three days in the summer get to be 90 degrees or higher. Yeah. I mean, if you're, in, if you're in Phoenix, you're looking at that and saying, what the heck are you yeah. calling that a heat That's wave? Wild. And when Professor Stephen Vermette did a deep dive of the records, the Buffalo State climatologist was shocked to find no increase in droughts or floods. There was this epic snowstorm last winter. Yes. Really deadly and yeah. destructive. The blizzard of 22. Christmas. But that's not a, an indication no, that those are going to get had, worse? You know, we had the blizzard of 77, the blizzard of 85, 81, blizzard of 36. I'm not saying that our severe weather is going to disappear. It's still there. Yeah. In fact, snow amounts have remained steady in all of this. It doesn't seem to be getting worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the key here. We're still going to have severe weather, right. like the wind and, and everything else. Right. But we're. It's not going to get worse. I got to say, it's pretty ironic and, and telling about the world we now live in that a place sort of associated with cold jokes right, and right. Super Bowl losses could be a huge winner relative on a hotter planet. That's, you know, that's, that's the way we look at it as well. There was a professor from Harvard that was talking about the effects of climate change and listed some cities that uh, would be considered climate refuges in the future. And uh, Buffalo was one of the cities on the list. And so uh, we just leaned into it. We are going to not only call ourselves a climate refuge city, but do the kinds of things that are required uh, to be welcoming with migration, with new Americans coming here, with seeing the first population growth in the city since the 1950 census. After Hurricane Maria, 3,000 Puerto Ricans became permanent Buffalonians. It was hard. When the hurricane started, what we do, we move from the second floor, we move to the first floor. Including Anthony Matei, who is now a teacher's assistant. I remember when I moved here, people told me, oh, you know where you're going? Because in Puerto Rico, it's always warm. It's hot. And I said, no, and I moved here like in winter. But I like it. It's good. Did you consider other spots? Or, or what, what, what was it about this place that appealed to you the most? The Great Lakes, the freshwater, the projections of climate change look like Buffalo might have a climate more like New York, Philadelphia towards the end of the century. Wildfire smoke helped drive Holly Jean Buck and her family out of Southern California. And as a climate scientist, she says she was welcomed with open arms and employment. But really the energy of the people, people who are really forward thinking in Western New York and New York State about what opportunities there might be in clean energy and clean tech um, and how to build you know, those solutions in ways that are good for communities. So it's not just the, the latitude, it's the attitude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. And the welcoming spirit of a place, I the, suppose. The city of good neighbors, they call it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And you found that to be the, the case? 
I have, totally. Yeah? Yeah. They're a little depressed in Buffalo after last night's loss to Denver. Uh, but in 2019, the mayor of Buffalo declared that city an official climate refuge. Uh, and in, as you saw there, uh, some people are taking them up on that offer there. The population is growing as the belly of the planet around the equator warms up. The southern latitudes in the United States will become increasingly harder to live in. And so the upper tier is looking like it's more advantageous. Much better to be on a defrost setting than on a broil. Phil Poppy? No question about it. That is so fascinating. I also hope, Bill, that Wolf Blitzer was not there to hear your criticism <laughs> of the Buffalo Bills record thus far this season. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Great reporting. You bet. You bet. All right, ahead for us, new statements on camera from Donald Trump's former co-defendants in the Georgia case, what their remarks could mean for that trial ahead for the president, and also news organizations around the globe asking for more of their journalists to be allowed on the ground to report in Gaza. It is key for transparency. We'll bring you the latest on that and the toll the war is having on our journalist colleagues in the field. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the civil fraud trial against former President Trump and the Trump Organization resumes in lower Manhattan. Trump's defense team expected to call a tax attorney for the Trump org to the stand today. Meanwhile, a deposition from one of Donald Trump's criminal trials is garnering a lot of attention this morning. ABC News and The Washington Post got video of former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis talking to Georgia prosecutors in their election interference case. In that video, Ellis describes a conversation she had with top Trump aide then and now Dan Scavino in late 2020. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump and everyone understood the boss. Um, that's what we all called him. Um, he said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. Joining us now to discuss is CNN political commentator Alyssa Farrah Griffin, writer of the Very Serious Newsletter and podcast host Josh Barrow, and CNN political analyst and New York Times national political reporter Ested Herndon. Alyssa, I want to start with you because I, can you describe who Dan Scavino is? Like, this isn't some random guy. He right. is literally everywhere, always with the president since the campaign of 15. Yes, he's one of his right-hand men. Um, he was actually deputy chief of staff in the final stretch of the Trump administration. His office was right outside. It was in the outer Oval Office because he was the person that Trump would say, get me Dan, he'd help him craft tweets. Very, very close, still very much in the inner circle. What stood out to me is I think Jenna Ellis is going to prove to be a very formidable witness um, in Georgia, which I'm not sure we kind of knew where she would mm -hmm. flesh out in yeah. this, but what she says echoes almost directly what Mark Meadows, the then White House chief of staff, said to me on December 3rd. I'd gone into his office and said, you know, I'm planning to resign. And he said, with another aide present, what if I told you we weren't going to leave office? And I tendered my resignation the next day. So I've shared that with federal prosecutors, and with the congressional committee. But I think you're going to find that at the highest tier of the Trump White House, there was a plan to try to stay in power at any cost. You know, this, um, I said, really tracks... Trump's comments about vermin over the weekend. Yep. It really tracks the great reporting that's been done by CNN, by The Washington Post, by The New York Times about what a second Trump term would look like, according to Trump and those around him. The Trump team is pushing back on that. They're calling that 
essentially speculative and theoretical, but Phil made the great point. Just go on the website. Yeah. Just look at where they actually stand. And let's not forget what Trump said in this Univision interview. This was just last week. Here it is. Something that allows the next party. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly, that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. When yeah. someone tells you who you are, believe them? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the reason why this stuff is kind of landing is because Trump has laid out his own stakes of 2020, what, what his next term would look like. And it is the more authoritarian. It is escalated rhetoric. It is using the levers of the federal government to target political opponents. And we know that this was a hallmark of the Trump administration the first time. But I think we are seeing someone who, frankly, has said that I'm not going to spend those first couple years maybe playing nice with Washington like I did last time. I'm going to use this as the kind of premise of my administration. When he talked about retribution in that speech, that's really the undergirding theme of what we've seen kind of the Trump campaign lay out in this kind of uh, GOP primary. And I think it's starting to set in for folks. The reason you see the Nikki Haley's or some other people kind of rising is because there is a real recognition that this version of Donald Trump, although it's the same character from last time, does have a kind of clear-eyed rhetoric that I think promises an authoritarian bend to this next version of himself. And, and I don't think that that should be ignored. He has a record and he has proposals going forward, plus all the rhetoric. Uh, rhetoric, Josh, I'm sorry I'm not going to ask about reciprocal tariffs. I know you and I want to have that discussion very badly. Sure but, but, but to that point, there's, you know, the, the Biden folks always complain. We're not focused on policy. You're not covering what we're doing that's having an effect on the economy or on health care, on drug pricing. There is a comparative mm -hmm. in terms of policy that the Trump team has up on their website. He talks about um, is that something that will break through at some point, or is it going to be just talking about what he says all the time? Well, I mean, I assume that abortion is eventually going to be a, set, a more central part of the campaign than it has been right now. I'm sort of surprised that I mean, we're, we seem to be setting up for an election that is a referendum election on Joe Biden, which I just find to be a shocking thing. You when mean, Donald because it's not on Trump? Right. You know, how, how can you mm -hmm. possibly have something that involves Donald Trump that is not primarily about Donald Trump? Like, the, the, a theme of our politics for the last eight years has been Donald Trump blocking out the sun. For whatever reason, this campaign is really about Joe Biden Why and Donald Trump. To that point, it's a great point. Yeah. Why? I, I, you know, I think a substantial part of it is that he's not on Twitter. Um, Donald Trump, I, I, whether this is a conscious choice on his part or not, and I think it is, is really not trying to drive the news cycle in the way that he did day after day for years. I think this is true now, but I think this is kind of turning to the point about people laying out what the reality of the next Trump administration will look like as, fo as, the, as the primary starts happening and he gets closer to the nomination and as the legal calendar really puts that attention back on him next year. I think that we can see this. I think right now it is really about Joe Biden and the Democrats won't like that. They would want well, this to be yeah. about the kind of stakes in the alternative. And I think the more, you know, this New York Times reporting was incredible about what they want to do in terms of, you know, locking up illegal immigrants, mass deportations, um, which, by the way, the Trump team directed those reporters to Stephen Miller, right. who gave those quotes. Then the campaign realized this is radioactive in a general election. You're going to lose independents, moderates, insane Republicans. Um, they then tried to walk it back. Get ready for that to be a common theme. Susie, Susie Wiles knows what she's doing when he puts out there some of his most dangerous rhetoric and ideas. The campaigns can be like, oh, no, look yep. no further. Yep. But in a second term, he's not constrained by running for re-election. Right. And the thing that kept guardrails when he had the craziest ideas is people like myself around would be like, you got to win an election again. You can't do this. That was like the only way you could communicate something. He will not have that in a second term. Nikki Haley, who has seen sort of a steady rise, it's nowhere near where Trump is in the polls, 
But her her language about Trump has remained pretty subdued, pretty muted in terms of criticism of him. She went there a bit in the debate, but not that much. Now Tim Scott drops out. Many people look at, does that help Nikki Haley? Do you think that her language and how she talks about Trump and these policies changes going forward as she tries to be the one who can take him on? I mean, the, the difficulty that has faced Haley and all the non-Trump candidates is that the usual set of criticisms you might lodge against Donald Trump are completely unimpressive to the voters in the Republican primary. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's not that they're stupid and that they forgot to attack the front runner. It's that it's, it's legitimately very difficult to come up with a strategy for doing that that will actually cause you to pick up votes in this campaign. I mean, you know, Tim Scott is, has dropped out. The uh, Des Moines Register NBC poll in Iowa found his, his support splitting in exact thirds right. among Ron DeSantis, yeah. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. Um, so I think the, the problem of consolidating remains, remains very serious. But the, the problem is that DeSantis and Haley have a very different pitch for being yeah. a non-Trump candidate. It's very similar to where Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were positioned in the 2016 campaign. And a lot of people who are for Ron DeSantis are not there because they desperately want anything other than Trump. And if they're forced to be choose between Trump and Haley, they're going to choose Trump. Vice versa, you have a lot of voters like that on Haley's side. So I think it remains extremely difficult to consolidate. Nikki Haley needs Donald Trump's voters if she wants to have any shot at becoming a serious alternative to him. She has to start peeling some of those people off. There simply aren't enough left of the kind of original GOP establishment. Yeah. And the base took real pride in the kind of working class switch that Donald Trump brought. There is real kind of serious, uh, I think, things she would have to speak to in that community. But like, you know, there's not enough typical Haley voters for a traditional path there. That's why she's not talking about Trump like that, because she needs his vote. Well, and to, to, we got to go. Oh, it's top of the hour. We could actually keep talking about this, and I hope we do soon. Uh, Alyssa, Josh, Stead, thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank it. You. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We are so glad you're with us on this Tuesday. Let's get right to it. President Biden's foreign policy set to face yet another major test as he departs today for a high stakes meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. They will be meeting on the sidelines of a big economic summit with other global leaders. We are already learning of a potential U.S.-China deal on fentanyl. It comes as President Biden is juggling his support of Israel's war against Hamas with the growing peril around Gaza's hospitals. The president... And the government he leads is now just three days away from a potential shutdown. That's right, a vote to avert it is set for today, but the measure proposed includes no funding for either the war in Ukraine or Israel's war against Hamas. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. And let's begin here. Right now, the families of hostages being held in Gaza are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They are demanding action. They are calling on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to secure the release of their loved ones. Here in the U.S., tens of thousands of people are expected to gather this morning on the National Mall to rally in support of Israel and the release of hostages. This all comes as Israeli airstrikes continue to pummel Gaza and the relentless ground assault grinds on. President Biden is urging restraint as Israeli troops and tanks surround Gaza's largest hospital. It's just one of the huge foreign policy crises he's dealing with as he prepares to leave D.C. and fly to the West Coast, where he will be meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping tomorrow. Arlette Sines is live for us at the White House. Arlette, you put the convergence of all of these significant geopolitical issues uh, at the same exact time. What are the expectations on this trip? 
Well, fellow President Biden is certainly juggling a host of foreign issues right now, including the conflict in Israel and also preparing for this meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Now, if you can hear the music behind me right now, there is actually a group of uh, pro-Israeli volunteers just outside the White House right now trying to raise awareness to those 240 hostages being held by Hamas. This group has been out here for several hours now, and it comes, as you noted, there will be those protests, uh, demonstrations here in Washington in support of Israel. But as the president is preparing to head out to San Francisco for this critical meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, he is expected to bring up both the conflicts between Russia and Ukraine and the conflict between Israel and Hamas in this meeting. Officials say that the president is hoping to lean on Chinese President Xi Jinping and his relationship with Iran to try to push Iran not to try to escalate this war uh, any further from preventing it, taking any actions to potentially widen the conflict. That is something that the president is planning to bring up in his meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Now, this meeting is all about trying to stabilize the relationship relationship between the two countries at a time when there have been moments of tension and strain over the course of the past year between the U.S. and China. Another issue Biden is expected to press Xi on is trying to restore the military to military communications. That is something that China pulled the plug on last year after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. They want to try to restore that communication to prevent any surprises from occurring. There are also expected to be a major agreement announced when it comes to the federal crisis, something that the Biden administration has been working towards for quite some time. But this uh, meeting will be watched very closely as the president is trying to uh, find a way to maintain this relationship without preventing it from deteriorating any further. Arlette right, Sines, live for us in the North Lawn. Thank you. Six weeks into the Israel-Hamas war, the conflict is taking a severe toll on journalists. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 42 journalists and media workers have been killed covering this war. 37 of them are Palestinian, 14 are Israeli, one is Lebanese. And the CPJ says the first month of the war was the deadliest month for reporters since it started collecting data back in 1992. On top of that, nine journalists have been injured, three have been reported missing, 13 arrested. Now, despite all of that danger that journalists face in the region, news organizations are now asking for more access to the Gaza Strip to cover the ongoing war. In a new letter to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, 11 news organizations, that includes CNN, highlight the need for more journalists on the ground in Gaza to document what's happening there. The organization's writing, in part, we understand the risks that reporting on the ground in a time of conflict entails, but we also know that factual impartial information is vital to enable the world to understand this crisis. There are a small number of journalists already reporting from inside Gaza, but in the midst of the fighting, consistent reporting has been a significant challenge. Without significant journalistic presence on the ground, news organizations are unable to verify competing claims from both Hamas and the IDF. As you are about to see, the IDF has allowed some journalists to embed with them on missions in Gaza, but those trips come with certain conditions, including being escorted by the IDF. Now, Israel's focus, its operations in and around Gaza's hospitals is growing more intense. As the IDF alleges, parts of the basement of this children's medical center was a, quote, Hamas command center. Seen as Nick Robertson, a foreign correspondent who has covered conflict for more than 30 years, is embedded with the IDF in Gaza. He says it's the worst destruction he's ever seen, and he joins us now from just east of the Gaza border. Nick, tell us what you saw. 
Yeah, this was a, a level at a scale of destruction that was worse than I'd previously uh, seen in Gaza following the 2014 incursion, and perhaps I think some of the worst destruction on such a big scale than I've ever seen across my uh, across my whole career. Um, just look over my shoulder here. John Torrigo is just going to zoom in there. You're looking at the Jabalia area, smoke rising from it inside of Gaza. That, and these images that we're about to show you, that's where the IDF took us yesterday. Driving into Gaza with the Israeli forces, it's a war zone. The conditions of our access only show officers, no faces of soldiers, and don't show sensitive equipment. We are passing mile after mile of destruction. Buildings blown, collapsed, nothing untouched by the fury of Israel's hunt for Hamas. Streets here crushed back to sand. Shops, everything that we see, no sign of any civilians here. A few miles in, we pull up at a command post. Soldiers living in blown apartment buildings. Hard to imagine how civilians endured the bombardment here. Our next journey, much deeper into Gaza. We arrive a hundred meters from a battle with Hamas. Tanks blasting targets in nearby buildings. The IDF's top spokesperson waiting for us. We're now, we're now conducting an operation inside Gaza next to Rantisi Hospital. Israel is facing massive international pressure over the destruction of homes, the shockingly high civilian death toll, and in the last few days, over its apparently heavy-handed tactics at hospitals. We are searching the tunnel with the bulldozers to reveal the tunnels that we suspect that are underneath the hospital. Gari has brought us here to show the connection he says exists between Hamas and the Rentisi Children's Hospital. We're now here in an area between a hospital, a school and a terrorist house. A Hamas commander, he says, lived there. He points out the solar panels on the roof. This is a tunnel that was slided like this, the floor. You can see here. This is the ladder going you down. see the yeah. ladder going down. I see yeah? the ladder going down. Okay, yeah. this is a 20 meter tunnel. And look at here. Look at the, look at the, look at the tunnel. Be, be careful yeah. here. But look down here. The, the cables are going down to the tunnel. Okay? So they're hardwired for, for, into for the tunnel. For what I wanted to show you, the solar panels on the terrace house provide electricity directly to the tunnel. We're in what is an active fire zone here. You can hear the small arms fire. The IDF say they're still clearing this area out. We're getting down here. Just taking a bit of cover because they say we're still taking fire. But over here, we were able to smell what smelled like rotting flesh, bodies perhaps buried underneath the rubble. Hagari later tells us he took a big risk bringing us into such a combat zone. It is clear he wants this story told. As we finally reach the hospital, it is already getting dark. A huge hole has been blasted through the walls into the basement. Why is the hospital so damaged? 
We'll talk, why is the hospital so, so delicious? I'll, I'll explain, yeah. it's an yeah. important yeah. question. Yeah, it is. We came to this hospital five days ago. There were still patients inside the hospital. We did not enter into the hospital. He claims since then, all patients were evacuated by hospital staff. We assist this evacuation, of course, to make it a safe pass for all the patients in the hospital. We do not know that the hospital is entirely clean. We do not know. We only entered to this area which was suspected because we were being fired. Gari leads us through a warren of basement corridors to this room. This was the armory, okay? This was the Hamas armory. Yeah. He shows us a few rusting guns and some explosives. These guns alone have potentially huge implications for Gaza's hospitals and Israel's apparent push to take control of them. The International Committee for the Red Cross say that hospitals are given special protection under international humanitarian law in a time of war. But if militants store weapons there or use them as a base of fire, then that protection falls away. In other rooms, he shows us a motorbike with a bullet hole in it that he suspects was used by Hamas attackers October 7th. And nearby, possible evidence hostages could have been held here. We are now in the basement in the same area, yards from the motorcycle. We see her a chair, we see her a rope. We see her a woman's clothes or a woman's something covering woman. Do you think this, a woman was tied up in this chair? This is an assumption going to be checked by DNA. More evidence, Hagari says, points towards Hamas and possible hostage presence below the hospital. And by bringing us here to this hospital and showing us the connection that you believe exists between the terrorists and the possibly hostages, what does this say about the other hospitals here in Gaza? Cynically, Shifa Hospital is known by facts, by intelligence, to be a terrorist hub. And also, it's suspicious also in holding hostages. This is the best shelter for the terror war machine of Hamas. But the hospital authorities said they have no knowledge of Hamas or other groups inside their hospitals. Is that possible? I think it's not possible for an hospital to have this kind of an infrastructure. We knew the terrorists were here. We How knew. You know? We knew. By intelligence, and also we got some fire from this area. From this area? This building. From this area. And, and we were right to fire because what we found an armory. But so much damage all around here. Yeah, there is damage all around here because Hamas made it impossible for us to fight him. He built all this infrastructure in tunnels and in hospitals around areas populated. As we exit the hospital, it is already dark. We're just getting ready to leave right now. The firefight still going on, still intense. Bullets fired, explosions going on up the street there. This war and the controversies surrounding it far from resolved. Nick, that is extraordinary, how close you were to the, the ongoing fighting, how you got into those buildings and asked the critically important questions of the IDF. When we saw near the end of your piece what they point to as possible evidence that a hostage was held there, did they show you and talk to you about how they are navigating this ongoing fighting that you were so close to with trying to find the hostages? Because the real fear is from these families you know, could our loved ones die in the middle of this fighting? 
They are, uh, and this it's not something that the IDF really seems to, to want to speak a lot about. Uh, they don't want to get into detail about it, but it was very clear they had a huge emphasis on discovering everything that they could about the tunnels, um, not just, I think, to prove to us and the world that, that they believe that there is this connection between tunnels and hospitals and other Hamas activities. Not that, I think, because it's a real live part of their investigation into the whereabouts of the hostages. Whatever they can try to figure out from that location and learn from that location can potentially apply to other, uh, to, to other hospitals. And there's a sense among the IDF that when the hospitals have been evacuated, if and I say if because that's, that's as, only, that is as far as they will go in, in describing this. If there were hostages there, then they think that perhaps they could have been moved away from the hospitals when the hospitals were evacuated. And that's not something that they, can, that they were able to check on at the time. And it's something that's very difficult for them to, to check on going forward. But that is a concern. And I think, you know, when you see people literally digging in huge holes of dirt at the side of the road in an active combat, zone, no military commander would ever send his troops into danger to try to dig up a tunnel unless there was a hugely important reason. And again, I don't believe that is only to prove to the world the connection, but it is to find out more information about possible whereabouts of hostages. Yeah. Nick Robertson, the proximity and the depth of your reporting, extremely valuable. Thank you. New York City Mayor Eric Adams will take questions from reporters today as the FBI investigates his campaign's alleged ties to Turkey. And a Secret Service agent on Biden's grand, President Biden's granddaughter's security detail fired shots at people attempting to break into a government vehicle. Why this matches a disturbing trend in the nation's capital? That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. So in just a couple of hours, New York City Mayor Eric Adams will take questions about the FBI's investigation into his campaign financing and possible foreign influence. These agents reportedly trying to determine whether the Turkish government benefited from donations to Adams' 2021 mayoral campaign. Federal agents, as we've reported, seized Adams' phones and his iPad early last week. Important to note, he has not been accused of any wrongdoing. Gloria Pazmino is following all of this. This is crucial because after they took the phones... Yeah. He was in front of reporters last week and didn't bring it up, and no one knew, so they yeah. couldn't ask. Now it was going to be a flurry of questions. Correct. We didn't actually learn it for several days. We learned it last Friday that the FBI has seized his phones, his electronics. And I think we need to start there, right? There are two big things that have happened in the last few days. The mayor's electronics were seized, and we're learning more about what federal authorities are looking into both the potential influence of foreign donors, mm -hmm. foreign nationals who made donations to his campaign, and whether or not the mayor used his office, his authority, uh, his influence to help some of those donors, specifically around the issue of fire safety permits that were needed at the Turkish consulate. That's what our law enforcement sources have been telling us. We know that the mayor, uh, before he took office, when he was still Brooklyn Borough president, sent some text messages to fire officials asking them to take a look into something that the consulate needed help with. He has argued that that was just part of doing his job. He was looking out for his constituents and that there's nothing to see there. But I think today there's going to be a lot of questions for the mayor who, as you said, has not been accused of any wrongdoing uh, and has said that there's nothing um, to be, he has nothing to hide. But here you have the FBI issuing a warrant, which means that they presented 
probable cause that there was evidence of a crime on those electronics. It may not mean that the mayor committed the crime, right. but they're looking for something. And for whatever reason, they, they, they told the judge they needed to hold on to these electronics and that a warrant was necessary to do that. And there's no telling when the FBI may come forward with anything, right? I mean, this could go on for a long time without us knowing much from officials. Correct. And as that develops, this is going to be something that the mayor is going to continue to have to ask, uh, answer questions about. And of course, he is trying to run the city. There are several uh, problems and issues that he is uh, trying to solve right now, namely the migrant crisis, yeah. uh, arguably one of the biggest issues affecting the city right now. And this is taking a lot of his time and, att and attention and focus. Yeah. So it may take a while. We've seen similar cases before. And I guess it'll we'll see how long it takes. Well, remember, he was sort of pulled back from that important meeting at the White House to deal with a matter. Now we know what the matter is. Thank you, Gloria, for the reporting. Phil. The D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and Secret Service are this morning investigating an agent on President Biden's granddaughter's security detail. The federal agent fired shots at people he saw trying to break into a government vehicle. This comes as a disturbing trend shows vehicle theft in Washington, D.C. has nearly doubled in the past year. Harry Anton is here to break down the numbers. Harry, start with this seems to be a national trend to some degree, right? It, it absolutely does, Phil. And, you know, when we look at car thefts nationally, this is in the first half of 2023 across 37 cities. Look at how high it is compared to pre-pandemic, wow. up over 100 percent. You look at within the last year nationally, look at this, still up 34 percent. There's been a lot of crime that's been dropping, but car theft, in fact, has been going up. You mentioned Washington. So let's take a look at Washington. Well, apparently we're not taking a look at Washington because this screen just went blank. That's right. Oh, there we go. That's we got it right back. You call it out. It'll come back to you, Harry. Beautiful. Okay. Car thefts in 2023 versus 2022. Look, Washington, nearly up 100%, up 98%. That is the largest in sort of the major city. Chicago up 56%. Here in New York City, it's up 18%. Los Angeles is actually down 2%, so we do see differing rates across the country. Overall, car thefts are up, some cities are down, but Washington is very much on the upper end of the spectrum, up nearly 100% this year versus last year, year to date. A district resident, as of like three months ago, I can vouch it is a major, major issue. When you look at overall crime, how it compares where things actually stand right now, what do you see? Yeah, so, you know, first what I want to point out is it's not just that we're seeing the change in rates going up. It's that the rates are really high. So in 2023, these are the car thefts per 100,000 cars among residents. Look at how high Washington is, over 2,000 per 100,000 cars. Compare that to New York City, where it's just 670. So it's not just that the rates are increasing, it's that they were already high to begin with. Here's the other thing about Washington, though. You were mentioning it, Phil, which is the overall crime rate in 2023 versus 2022. It is up in Washington, D.C. It's up 27 percent. So a lot of people aren't feeling safe there. Compare that to a place like New York, where crime is actually down by a percent. So the fact is Washington, D.C. has higher vehicle theft, and it's part of a larger trend of overall crime growing overall. So it's a big reason why I think a lot of people in Washington, D.C., don't exactly feel really safe these days. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's, it's fascinating numbers. Harry, as always, my friend, thank you. Thank you. Poppy? All right, just three days to go until the government could shut down. Will Democrats get behind a Republican-led two-tier solution? And eight Republicans joining Democrats in blocking an impeachment vote for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We're going to speak with the congressman who voted for the impeachment. That's next.
This new innovation, the ladder CR, the two-stage CR, is, is an important innovation. It's a paradigm shift. So breaking it up, doing part of the bills in early January, part by February 2nd, allows Congress to do its job. And so this will have to be a bipartisan measure to prevent the government from shutting down, because I guarantee you, if the government shut down, you know who they would blame. They'd blame the House Republicans. That was Speaker Mike Johnson just moments ago on Fox News. You can tell by the clock behind me, it's crunch time. And while you may be numb to us saying that in relation to government funding, we're here again, just three days left to avoid a government shutdown. House Republicans currently pursuing what you just heard from the Speaker, a two-step plan, a staggered plan to fund the government. Neither, uh, neither of those new deadlines have anything to do with additional aid for Israel or Ukraine. Meanwhile, Eight Republicans voted with Democrats on Monday to block an impeachment vote for Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. Instead, the House referred it to uh, the, an impeachment resolution to the Homeland Security Committee. Now, since retaking the House majority, Republicans have sought to impeach Mayorkas over his handling of the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Joining us now is South Dakota Congressman Dusty Johnson. Uh, sir, we appreciate your time. I, I want to start with, and I know you are not a spokesperson for the House Democratic Caucus, nor will you be in their closed-door meeting in about 30 minutes. But... Uh, have you gotten any signals that they will help your conference get this over the finish line today? I think things are moving in the right direction. One of the things I hate about Washington, D.C. is how quickly uh, people get themselves whipped into a thick lather in opposition to everything. Nobody really wants to get to yes in this town. And that meant early Democratic reaction to Speaker Johnson's plan was pretty negative. I am grateful that they have, I think, taken a couple deep breaths understood what we're trying to do makes a ton of sense. And I do expect that a decent number of them will support it when it hits the floor. So, Congressman, this will set two deadlines uh, for kind of chunks of the 12 appropriations bills, separating them. My question right now, and particularly as somebody who I know is, is considered a kind of a worker inside the conference, your leadership has had to pull two full-year bills, Republican full-year appropriations bills in the last week. Why are we not going to be here in mid-January and again in February. I do think it's pretty unfortunate when you've got eight or 10 or 15 hardliners who, uh, on the Republican side, who make it just about impossible for us to get anything done. We will put a really good conservative work product on the floor. It won't be perfect, and so they'll walk away from it. It is frustrating. And so I, what, I, what I think is different is uh, an understanding that as we get closer to the end of this journey, of course, it's going to require some votes on both sides of the aisle. Maybe I don't love that idea, but the reality is that the Democrats control the Senate, the Republicans control the House. To fund government, we're going to need a bipartisan vote. We're inching closer to that, uh, which means that those hardliners, I think, will be in less of a position to let perfect be the enemy of the good. The uh, proposal today, it's a, a flat continuing resolution, does not include any aid for Israel, which I know you support. The House Republicans passed their Israel aid bill uh, last week, I believe, and it does not include any aid for Ukraine. I want you to listen to what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said yesterday. Each week that passes, our ability to fully fund what we feel is necessary to give Ukraine the tools and capacities it needs to both defend its territory and to continue to make advances, that gets harder and harder. So for us, the window is closing. Congressman, if the window is closing, uh, CRs, omnibuses, whether you like them or don't like them, they are the vehicles to pass things like Ukraine aid. Is there any pathway to Ukraine aid anytime soon? It doesn't have to be these big omnibus packages that uh, lumber into this capital in the dead of night and then everybody's forced to vote on it the next day. 
Republicans in the House when we took control. We said we weren't going to do that type of thing. And you know what? We've actually been pretty good at keeping our word. I, I support helping Ukraine defend their country, but let's have a conversation about that. I think so much of the frustration on the Republican side has been that the administration has not laid out what is the strategic plan? Exactly what are these dollars going for? What's the accountability? How are those dollars tied to a definition of victory? If we have a strategic conversation, and I know that may take a few days, but we should not allow the failures of the administration over the last 18 months to force Congress into making yet another bad spending decision. Let's help Israel. Let's help Ukraine. Let's do it the right way. Before I let you go, Congressman, uh, I, I want to ask you this because it is so anathema to my observations of your approach uh, to the job. And that's something that the former president uh, said over the weekend. Take a listen. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. Sir, he's the front runner in your uh, party's nomination. Seems almost certain at this point he's going to be the nominee. I'm not asking you to endorse one way or the other or any of the candidates that are out there. But your response to that, if he is your nominee, if he is the next president of the United States, that type of language, that type of rhetoric. I can't defend that rhetoric. There are clearly uh, people within our country who don't particularly like American values. I don't think they're quite as uh, multitudinous as the former president made them sound. But more importantly, if we're going uh, to, to beat back the internal challenges to this country, we're not going to do it through anger and through fear. We're going to do it through uh, logic, through reason, through coalition building, through an understanding of what makes America great and how can we leverage that to be able to win the policy battles that admittedly some folks on the left have very different views about how to run the things uh, like the southern border and, and uh, this government spending than I do. I want to beat them, but I want to beat them with rhetoric that I think is a little bit more uh, hopeful, positive, and uh, helpful than what we just heard. Congressman Dusty Johnson, we appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you. In Israel, families of hostages being held by Hamas marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem today, demanding their government do everything they can to save their loved ones. This is happening as the conflict between Israel and Hezbollah intensifies at the Lebanon border. The details on that front, next. Well, this just in the Biden administration announcing a new round of sanctions on key Hamas officials. It is also officially designated the leader of Palestinian Islamic Jihad's militant wing as a global terrorist. Meanwhile, overnight, there were reports of intense shelling across the Israel-Lebanon border as tension continues to escalate between Iran-backed Hezbollah and Israel along its northern border. According to reporting from Axios, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has expressed concern to his Israeli counterpart, Yoav Gallant, about Israel's role in this escalation. And joining us now is the journalist behind that reporting, Axios political and foreign policy reporter Barak Ravid. This is so interesting. And if I could just read people a little bit of your reporting, because you say some of the Biden administration are concerned Israel is trying to provoke Hezbollah and create a pretext for a wider war in Lebanon that could draw on the U.S., and other countries into further contact uh, conflict. That's a that's a big deal. 
Yes, good morning. I think it's a very big deal because, you know, we're so focused on the war in Gaza, and rightly so, because that's the main event. But over in the north, on the Lebanese-Israeli border, there's a side event <clears throat> that very quickly and very easily could turn into something 10 times bigger than Gaza, 10 times more dangerous, and that could engulf the whole region. And I think that what the Biden administration is telling the Israeli government is... We're watching you, and we know that there are some people inside the Israeli government, including, by the way, the Minister of Defense himself, Yoav Gallant, who, you know, are toying with this idea of broadening the war to, to Lebanon. And the Biden administration, I think, sent a message very clearly to Gallant himself that this is something that they would not see as a positive development. Uh, Barack, the idea of toying with the idea of broadening the war... Why? And I think I asked it because so much of the administration, at least officials I've spoken to, I know you've reported a ton on this as well, why they have uh, naval assets in the region, why they've sent missile defense systems to the region, why they have rapid reaction forces in the region are to stop exactly that. What would lead some Israeli officials to believe that that would be a, a, a good move? Uh, first, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. Uh, but uh, what I think that what Gallant and others in the IDF uh, think is twofold. First, they say, you know, we're already in a war uh, mm. and we're already in, in daily skirmishes with Hezbollah uh, in the north. So maybe it is an opportunity to also sort of uh, um, deal with that threat too. And second, and this is something that, you know, for practical reasons, Israel evacuated tens of thousands of people from the villages and towns along the border with Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And those people say that they will not go back home if on the other side of the border there's the threat from Hezbollah to do exactly what Hamas did on October 7th. So the Israelis are telling the Biden administration, if we don't take this uh, threat away, uh, we won't have anything to tell our own citizens. But as you said at the outset, the capability uh, and the force that Hezbollah holds is so many times that of Hamas and Gaza. So it would be an even more difficult and, and protracted fight, most likely. What about the hostages? There are these threads of reporting. I know you have some. We heard Mike McCall, after being in Israel, talk this weekend about considerations that the Israeli government is making to at least agree to part of what Hamas is saying it wants for the hostages back. What do we know this morning? I think it's still a moving target, uh, meaning uh, we are every day, we are we're getting to the point of almost, 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 and then we're not there. Uh, and this, is, this has been the case, I think, for something like uh, two weeks. There were several ideas on the table, several proposals that were discussed, but any time when things got to the decision point, either Israel or Hamas uh, uh, backed off. So I think, again, there are discussions, there are serious but we're still, at least from everything I know, we're not there yet. What causes either side or both sides to back off? I think it's the um, sort of uh, relation between the number of hostages that Hamas will release and the number of days that Israel will agree to pause its military operation. And I, th that's where the negotiations are. Each side is trying, Israel is trying to get more hostages for less days, and Hamas is trying to release less hostages for more days, and the U.S. and Qatar are trying to somehow come up with um, some sort of compromises. For now, again, we're still not there. 
Barack Ravid with the critical reporting. As always, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Well, a landmark clinical trial on the drug Wagovi showing people taking it were less likely to develop diabetes. We're going to speak with the CDC about this new development. That's next. As the world marks International Diabetes Day today, the results of a landmark clinical trial suggest people using a popular weight loss medication Wagovi were less likely to develop diabetes. Patients enrolled in this trial were all in the overweight or obese categories, but didn't have diabetes themselves. Researchers found that those taking, Wigo taking Wagovi had a 73% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes and a 67% lower risk of developing prediabetes than patients on placebo. Joining us now is the director of the CDC's Division of Diabetes Translation, Dr. Chris Holliday. Sir, we appreciate your time. Um, to start, you know, I feel like so much of the conversation about these types of drugs is about celebrities taking them or people taking yeah. them from what this study seemed to show they have a very clear effect for what they were intended for. Should that also, in your view, include those individuals with diabetes? Yes, in fact, many of these drugs are for people with type 2 diabetes, and we encourage people to talk to your healthcare provider about whether or not these drugs are appropriate for you based on other conditions a person may have or, or contraindications, if you will. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is really prediabetes, which is a serious health condition that many people don't know they have. About one in three U.S. adults has prediabetes. That's 98 million people. And it's largely asymptomatic, so about 81% of them don't know they have it. It is a serious health condition, and it puts you at risk for other serious health conditions like type 2 diabetes or heart attack and stroke. And so the CDC has partnered with the Ad Council to release the Do I Have Prediabetes campaign PSAs, and they are talking about being your own hero, meaning really taking control of your own health and knowing where you stand as far as prediabetes. Right. These are the critical questions we all have to ask when we go to our primary care provider for your annual checkup, right? So how would you know? Is it blood work that is done and then you ask about this? What do people need to do to find out if they're one of those? Yeah, the key is awareness. So first, we encourage people to go to a simple website, doihaveprediabetes.org, and take a simple one-minute risk test. This risk test really t asks you about whether you have a little bit of excess weight, whether you might be over the age of 40, whether you might have been a woman with gestational diabetes, whether you have a family member, a mother, father, brother, or sister that has type 2 diabetes. And this simple test can let you know whether you have or are at risk for prediabetes. Mm -hmm. And so we just ask, if once you get a certain score on that risk test, talk to your healthcare provider, mm -hmm. and they can, take, they can have you take a, a confirmatory blood test to verify whether you have prediabetes or not. For people who are watching this, if you have prediabetes, what should you be doing? What, what are the, the things you can do to try and counter that? The good news is that prediabetes and type 2 diabetes can be prevented or delayed. And the National Diabetes Prevention Program, which is operated out of the CDC, is a lifestyle change program that encourages people with a coach to make modest lifestyle changes like losing 5 to 7% of their body weight or eating more vegetables and getting at least 20 minutes of activity per day. These modest changes really help to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Christopher Holliday, thank you for raising awareness and giving us all some tools. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for having me.
Well, Presidents Biden and Xi expected to announce a major crackdown on fentanyl at a highly anticipated meeting tomorrow in California. Tens of thousands right now gathering on the National Mall in Washington in support of Israel. We'll take you there next. Law enforcement agencies are ramping up security in Washington as tens of thousands of people are gathering on the National Mall for a March for Israel rally this morning. And nearly 6,000 miles away in Israel, families of hostages being held by Hamas are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, calling on their leaders to do more to bring their loved ones home. And in Washington, D.C., celebrities, members of the Jewish community and leaders expected to speak at the pro-Israel demonstration. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says the National Guard is going to help the D.C. Metro Police Department because there are security concerns about potential counter-protesters and possible lone actors. Gabe Cohen is covering it all, the National Mall, and he joins us this morning. It's going, expected to be quite a turnout. Yeah, Poppy, the organizers are hoping this is going to be the largest gathering of American Jewish communities in recent memory, with tens of thousands of people expected on the National Mall in the hours ahead. And look, organizers were really intentional about the language, the toned-down language that they used uh, as they prepared this rally, really to bring together this big tent of unity, organizations and American Jews from across the political spectrum. They said that this rally was really about three things, combating anti-Semitism, calling for a release of the Israeli hostages still in Gaza, and uh, calling for solidarity with Israel and the Israeli people. Take a listen to the heads of one of the organizations uh, that put this event together, speaking a little earlier on CNN this morning. We're going to stand proudly and say we will not be intimidated in our homes, in our communities, in our places of worship. We will stand on the National Mall in the, in the most visible place in this country and say America will not stand for this and our community will not stand for this. And look, we expect that message of unity to be mirrored in some of the speakers we're going to be seeing on the schedule right now. Uh, the new House Speaker, Republican Mike Johnson, uh, Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer, Republican Senator Joni Ernst. So uh, really leaders from across the aisle. And as you mentioned, Poppy, law enforcement is really on high alert today. Uh, we know that both local and federal law enforcement are participating, are going to be monitoring this event. Uh, looking around the mall, this long section of the mall, nearly a mile in length, is completely fenced off, uh, blocked with the roads around it, closed off, blocked by uh, police vehicles, city dump trucks, even military vehicles. We know that the mayor here in D.C., as you mentioned, has called in the National Guard, and D.C.'s police force is fully deployed today. So they are, are concerned not just about the tens of thousands of people who are going to be here, but also about potential uh, for uh, counter-protests, but clashes between groups uh, and we know that there are no according to the intelligence so far gathered by our CNN teams uh, there are no clear threats uh, of uh, any imminent attacks or anything like that but we know law enforcement has a joint information center they put together they are going to be monitoring it closely as will we in the hours ahead Poppy. Gabe Cohen we appreciate it keep us posted thank you. Also, this just in to the U.S. economy. U.S. consumer prices cooled a bit in October after rising for the last two months. The consumer price index rose 3.2 percent. That's down from 3.7 percent in September. There's also some positive news on the underlying inflation front. The core that excludes food and energy climbed 0.2 percent, bringing the annual increase to 4 percent. That's the lowest since September 2021. 
And Mr. Stan, the conservative House Freedom Caucus has officially come out against Speaker Mike Johnson's spending plan, the two-tiered continuing resolution. This comes after the newly elected speaker met with the group of roughly 30 to 40 hardliners last night. The group wants spending cuts in addition to the two-step approach. They said in a statement, quote, while we remain committed to working with Speaker Johnson, we need bold change. Did they, they get there, Manningly? They expected the Freedom Caucus to go along with it. They need Democrats. Democrats are meeting in 30 seconds. <laughs> Dusty Johnson says they'll get there. All right. Thanksgiving matters. Fingers crossed. But then you Jeff won't get your clock anymore. We, we will. In clock. January okay, and in sad. February. <laughs> true. Savage true. Thank you so much for starting your day with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.